Hello, Lakers! Welcome to A Splash of Murder. I'm Heather, and I'll be your guide today on a lake with some eerie history. We're not here for the views of the water. We're here for what lies beneath. So strap on your life jackets and get ready to climb aboard. Gilco Beach is the perfect place for a summer getaway. With its white beaches and clean, clear water, it's no wonder it's a popular tourist spot. However, Gilco Beach doesn't only attract beachgoers. It also attracts murderers. Today, Lakers, we are discussing the Long Island Beach Killer, also called Lisk. But to tell the story of the Gilco Beach murders, we need to go further back in New York's murders of sex workers. Actually, not too far back, because one of New York's most prolific serial killers had a strangely similar style in how he murdered sex workers, and possibly could shed light on who we can look for today. Joel Rifkin was born January 20th, 1959. His birth parents placed him for adoption, and he found his way into a loving middle-class family. Joel, however, had a hard time amongst his peers and in school. His slow walk and awkward stance caused children to call him names such as Turtle. He struggled in school due to his undiagnosed dyslexia. Due to the constant bullying and torment the other kids caused him on a daily basis, Joel chose to isolate himself. This was the beginning of Joel Rifkin's downward spiral, and he spiraled hard. Joel graduated high school, however, could not keep up with the college work and dropped out after a couple years and a couple schools. He worked on and off at part-time jobs and began visiting sex workers regularly. He began obsessing over sex and sex workers and began missing work, which caused him to lose money. In February 1987, Joel's father killed himself to end the pain he was suffering due to his cancer. It was Joel who delivered the eulogy at his funeral. When Joel's funds had finally run dry, Joel's pent-up anger exploded from him, and in 1989, he murdered his first victim. In August of that year, Joel was arrested for solicitating sex workers. He also began a new hobby. He started obsessively collecting books, but not your average James Patterson. Now, he was more interested in books about serial killers of, as he puts it, whores. So he read books on serial killers such as The Green River Killer, which we covered in episode six. A woman who went by the name Susie was the unfortunate target of Joel's wrath. He furiously bludgeoned her to death, and then, when he was done, he dismembered her body, spreading her parts across New York and New Jersey. Her body and the body of his next victim were never discovered. In 1991, Joel was busy, not only did he start and launch his own landscaping business, but he also killed his third victim. A body was found on the Hudson River. It had been forced into a plastic bag and then forced into a cardboard box. The body was badly decomposed at the time it was found. The coroner would later release that the cause of death was due to strangulation. 
She was later identified as 31-year-old Barbara Jacobs. It was around this time that Joel truly began his spree of killing. Young Lee, a 31-year-old sex worker, was found in a steamer trunk. 22-year-old Mary Ellen DeLuca's naked body was found in a field in Cornwall, New York. She had been strangled to death and had been missing for a month before her body was found. A few days before Christmas, Joel took another victim. Lorraine Orvetto was 28. She had been strangled to death and stuffed into a 55-gallon oil drum. Joel then drove the drum to the Coney Island Creek, where he dumped it. It took more than six months for her body to be found. The oil drum must have unleashed a new excitement in Joel, as he would turn to it in future murders. Maybe it was the ease of disposal, or the fact that he had control of the remains while he had the barrels, but he would use these oil drums in at least four more murders after Lorraine's. In May of 1992, a woman who is still yet to be identified was found within a barrel in Newton Creek, and another woman, Marianne Holloman, would be found entombed in a barrel in the Coney Island Creek on July 9th of 1992. Joel still allowed old urges to lead his methods of murder. He clearly enjoyed using the barrel, but he also liked to strangle and dump his victims. In 92, he strangled 25-year-old Iris Sanchez and left her body under a mattress at an empty lot at the JFK airport. He dumped Anna Lopez's body off 84 into the woods after strangling her to death. He broke the neck of Jenny Sato, but that wasn't before she got some blows in. She fought so hard she left fingernails in Joel's face. On Mother's Day of 92, the skeletal remains of Leah Evans were found in Northampton. This, however, would not be his last victim. His last victim would be found in the most surprising and simplest of ways. We have seen it before with serial killers, and we will probably always see it end in the most brainless fashion. Ted Bundy was caught at a traffic stop. Dennis Nilsson had a blocked drain. Dennis Rader and the floppy disk. David Berkowitz and the parking ticket the list of brainless mistakes that lead to the end of the reign of serial killers goes on. And Joel was no exception. In June of 1993, state troopers spotted Joel driving without license plates. He thought, apparently, that he'd outwit them in a high-speed chase, which ultimately ended with him crashing into a utility pole and handcuffed in the back of a police car. And the universe served Joel's arrest in true ironic glory. The utility pole that Joel crashed into sat right in front of a courthouse, the same courthouse that Joel would ultimately stand trial. Unfortunately, as I said before, Leah Evans was not his last victim, and as the police began to search his bashed-in truck, they noticed that unmistakable smell of death, and in the back of the truck, police found the body of 22-year-old Tiffany Brashena. Joel eventually confessed to killing 17 women, four of which have never been found. He was found guilty of nine murders, and in 1994, he was sentenced to 203 years to life. Let's fast forward now to the early 2000s. November 19, 2000, hikers came across what appeared to be garbage thrown into the Long Island Pine Barrens in Manorville. However, Within the bag was the disposed torso of a woman. She was unidentified for years and had been given the name the Manorville Jane Doe. Her skull 
hands, and right foot were located in a plastic bag near the parkway of Gilgo Beach. On April 2011, in May of 2020, she was positively identified as Valerie Mack. In 2003, another female torso was found in Manorville, New York. She was identified as Jessica Taylor. Her head, hands, and forearm were found on May 11th of 2011. The torso showed signs that someone had tried to remove a tattoo on her back. On July 9th, 2007, Maureen Branward Barnes had booked a client through Craigslist and had traveled from Norwich, Connecticut to Midtown Manhattan to meet up with them. She was last seen in her Super 8 hotel room. On July 14, 2007, she was reported missing to police. December 13th of 2010, her strangled body was found dumped along the parkway near Gilgo Beach. 24-year-old Melissa Bathamy had left her apartment in the Bronx after arranging to meet a client for a date anticipating a $1,000 payment. She was going somewhere in Long Island, and when her sister didn't hear from her, she began calling Melissa's phone, and a man would answer and claim to have killed her sister. December 10th of 2011, her strangled body was found alongside the parkway near Gilgo Beach. June 6, 2010, a security camera caught the image of 22-year-old Megan Waterman as she was walking out of her hotel around 1.30 in the morning. She was staying at the Hop Hog Holiday Inn Express. She was never seen again. Her strangled body was discovered December 13, 2010 by the parkway near Gilgo Beach. 27-year-old Amber Lynn Costello was booked to see a client who had called multiple times to set up a date with Amber. They offered her $1,500 for a date, and Amber agreed. Her strangled body was found by the parkway near Gilgo Beach. Just hearing these few stories of these poor girls, it's easy to come to the conclusion that a serial killer was rampant in Long Island, New York. At first, reports were only naming the Gilgo Four as the victims of the serial killer, Maureen Brainard Barnes, Melissa Bartholomew, Amber Lynn Costello, and Megan Waterman. However, as the story begins to unfold and the timeline is clearly constructed, the amount of women that could have fell victim to this killer start to pile up. But what led police to Gilgo Beach in the first place? At 4.51 a.m. on May 1st, 2010, a 911 call was placed. Someone's after me. A desperately distraught voice cried over the phone. The call lasted 22 minutes, and 911 was called twice more after that. The call was coming from a residential community near Gogo Beach. Again, the voice over the line said, Somebody's after me. There's somebody after me. There's somebody after me. The voice belonged to Shannon Gilbert. Shannon worked as an escort. Shannon disappeared that early morning after begging for help, and what ensued from her disappearance was not only the mystery behind the Gilgo murders, but police failures, community failures, society failures, which was clearly demonstrated from the very beginning. What transpired on the 911 recordings where Shannon begged for someone to help her the last night she was seen alive was kept secret for 12 years until Suffolk County police decided to share them under the supposed efforts of an ongoing transparency between the police department and the public around the Gilgo Beach case. 
It was Shannon's disappearance that led to the nearly dozen other sets of remains, most of them Craigslist escorts who vanished. However, Suffolk police have said multiple times they don't believe Shannon is connected to the other deaths at Gilgo Beach. In more recent years, Suffolk County Police Commissioner Rodney Harrison, a former NYPD top chief, had pledged to be more transparent and more open in the ongoing unsolved investigation. Even the video of Megan Waterman was held onto by Suffolk administration. On December 11th, Shannon's remains were found in a marshy swamp by Oak Beach. Her manner of death was inconclusive. The night that Shannon would ultimately die, she tried furiously to get away from someone or something. Her driver, Michael Pack, would eventually tell his version of the events that night. Shannon was at the house of Joseph Brewer. Michael's voice is heard on the 911 call, as well as Joseph Brewer. You can hear Michael ask Shannon if she's okay, and Shannon asks him if he's going to kill her. Michael responds with, you're freaking me out. Then Michael says, let's go back. Let's go back to Manhattan, all right? We're in Long Island. We're near the waters of the ocean. Shannon says, no, stop. Then she begs Michael to help get her out of Joseph Brewer's house. Shannon ran out of Joseph's house and ran straight to the neighbor's house. Gus Coletti was woken to the frantic banging of the door. Gus opened the door to clearly distraught Shannon and asked her if she was okay. And Shannon, breathing very heavy, responded, I need help. This interaction can be heard on the 911 audio. Shannon then turns and runs again. Gus then calls 911, letting the dispatcher know that a woman was running around screaming that there's some guy trying to follow her. This is when Shannon's 911 call ended. Shannon banged on the door of Barbara Brennan and begged for help. Barbara did not allow her inside and instead called 911, stating that there was a woman saying she was in danger. Shannon ran again and then disappeared. Police responded an hour after the 911 call was placed by the neighbor. That's right. There was never an officer dispatched for Shannon's 20-minute phone call to 911. But when police got to the area, Michael the driver and both neighbors were gone. So, instead of investigating any further, police left, figuring Shannon had driven away. Police at first wrote off Shannon as a sex worker drug addict. They theorized that she got disoriented in the marsh reeds that can grow up to 12 feet tall and without light would have blocked her view of the highway and ocean. Some of her belongings were found along the trench that lead through the marshland. Here's a statement by the police department. The Suffolk County Police Department is open to evaluate any evidence to be able to help us and all involved determine a definite cause of death. However, Based on the evidence, the facts, and the totality of the circumstances, the prevailing opinion is that Shannon's death, while tragic, was not a murder and was most likely an accident. The theory being given was that maybe Shannon drowned in the marsh. However, Shannon was found face up, which is very uncommon in drowning victims. Officially, Shannon's death is ruled inconclusive, according to investigators. However, Shannon's family would not tire until the truth was uncovered. Her family hired a private pathologist who could not confirm cause of death. However, reported signs of Shannon's remains that were consistent 
of strangulation. Seven months after Shannon vanished, the Gilgo Four were found. Their bodies were found in burlap sacks within a quarter mile of each other on Ocean Parkway. All four women were discovered to be Craigslist escorts, and all were determined to be strangled. In April and May of 2011, the remains of six other individuals were also found. The bodies were found within about 500 feet of each other. Investigators have not been able to determine whether a lone killer or several killers were involved, but they have said over the years they don't believe one person is responsible for all the deaths. This leads us back to Joel Rifkin. Joel has been asked whether or not those women belong to him. He has even weighed in on his opinions of the killings. Curiously, the women were all sex workers, the same demographic of women Joel killed in the 90s. During an interview, Joel has said, I have nothing to do with those bodies. Rifkin hunted women close to the area, and some of the bodies he claims to have amounted have not been found, so naturally he would be considered. Maybe not so much as the killer, but maybe as an accomplice or a copycat. Unsurprisingly, Joel has been following the case of the Gilgo victims. He stated his opinion on who he believes the killer is in an interview. He thinks the culprit could be a local whose line of work would allow him to go unnoticed if he carries burlap sacks. Like the clam fisherman who frequented the same South Shore area where he went fishing with his dad during his childhood, Joel said, My guess is it would be someone like a landscaper, contractor, or fisherman. This wouldn't be the first time a serial killer weighed in on another serial killer. We discussed this with Ted Bundy and the Green River killer Gary Ridgway. During the investigation, it was discovered that an Oak Beach resident, the area that Shannon disappeared from, Dr. Peter Hackett called Shannon's mom and claimed to run a home for wayward girls and told her that he had actually treated Shannon on the morning of her disappearance. Strangely, he denied making these calls until phone records proved them to be true. Oddly, he admits to those phone calls in two letters to the CBS News. And Dr. Peter Hackett admits to of calling Shannon Gilbert's mother in the days after her disappearance. So here's a question. How did he get Shannon's mother's phone number? According to Mary, Shannon's mother, the former police doctor, Peter Hackett, claimed to have given Shannon medication that night to calm her down because he was worried about her. He later denied that. Mary felt so strongly that Peter was involved in her daughter's death that she filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Hackett in November of 2012, which she asserted that he had brought a frightened Shannon into his home and administered drugs to calm her, which ultimately caused her death. The Suffolk police claimed Peter was just an individual who liked to get involved and insert himself into events, but they didn't consider him a suspect. Also an interesting fact, the marshy area where Shannon Gilbert's body was found is not far from Dr. Hackett's backyard. And yet, the death of Shannon Gilbert remains unsolved, along with all the women who were found murdered at Gilgo Beach. The unidentified killer is believed to have murdered 10 to 16 people, mainly sex workers. By April of 2011, police had discovered the remains of 10 victims in the vicinity of Gilgo Beach, covering a distance of about 7 miles along the Ocean Parkway. 
The victims included eight women, an Asian man dressed in female clothes, and a toddler. The mother of the toddler was one of the women. Five of the bodies were identified, including Megan Waterman, Jessica Taylor, Melissa Bartholomew, Maureen Brainard Barnes, and Amber Lynn Costello. Due to the locations of the remains, the killer was also dubbed the Gilgo Beach Killer. So let's circle back to Joel again. He killed at least 17 women from 1989 to 1993. Then, there's a couple more killers around this time, like Robert Shulman, who was convicted murder of at least five people from 1991 to 1996 in the Hickville area. And then there's John Biltroff, who was charged for two murders, however suspected to have committed more during the early 90s. Interestingly, as well, John Biltroff wasn't arrested or connected to the murders he was convicted for until 2014. So for 20 years, he remained free. That's possibly three serial killers that roamed the streets within the same time frame. Is it possible that one of them didn't work alone? Is it possible there's a copycat? Well, what we do know is that there was plenty of mistakes made in this case. Shannon Gilbert's 911 audio was kept secret for 12 years until a judge forced the investigators' hands. Surveillance videos of Megan Waterman were only released recently to the public. Why has this evidence been kept secret for so long? In January of 2021, Suffolk County Police Commissioner Geraldine Hart released a picture to the press of a leather belt with the hand-graved initials HM, or, if you looked at it upside down, WH. Ms. Hart said the police believed the belt had been handled by the killer. She did not say why they thought that, or even where the belt came from. She didn't show the belt itself, just an image of the initials. So why did it take so long to release such interesting evidence? And even more puzzling, why did the commissioner choose the same day that Netflix released the trailer for Lost Girls to hold this press conference? Hart said it was to bring attention back to the case, but I'm guessing it was partly to try to cover up the lack of investigation the movie was about to shed light on. We see it so often. Serial killers freely admit that they choose vulnerable targets such as sex workers because they aren't missed or police don't care about them or they're disposable. Of course they are missed and loved because they are human beings with families and friends and not the subhuman trash serial killers make them out to be. But in so many cases, the investigations into their murders are half-assed at best. These murders have revealed an incredible amount of sex workers who have gone missing and have been found murdered, such as four sex workers found murdered in Atlantic City. On November 20th of 2006, the bodies of four women were found spaced several feet apart in a span of just over 300 feet. They were all strangled or asphyxiated. All four were found face down and barefoot. Could these murders be linked? Could there be two serial killers that still walk free in Suffolk County and Nassau County? And where is the coverage of this investigation? Shannon Gilbert is still not considered connected to the Gilgo murders. So let's evaluate why. The night she died, she went to Joseph Brewer's house after he called her from his personal landline and set up a date. If he killed her, he won left behind a digital trail that the police could easily trace. 
too, decided to murder her after she had already called 911 and created a huge disturbance in his gated community. 3. Left her body in a nearby marsh. 4. He also made no effort to hide her ID or belongings. Those points are all very valid reasons why Joseph Brewer didn't kill her. The fact that she was found dead under circumstances that cannot be proven less than three miles from a serial killer's dumping ground of 10 bodies still seems incredibly coincidental. Is it possible that she was not a victim of the Lisk murders? Of course. There's been no definitive proof of her cause of death to this day. Some theories floating around is she was on drugs and the combo of drugs and her bipolar disorder caused her to have a manic episode that she ran into the marsh and died due to the elements. The reason she was naked and had no belongings was due to her body's reaction to hypothermia, where in the state of her confusion, her body felt as though she was burning up, so she took off all of her clothes herself. It's called paradoxal undressing. Of course, this is again merely a theory. She could have also knocked on the door of the real list killer for all we know who, out of precaution of preserving his graveyard, wanted to put an end to the ruckus Shannon was stirring in his nice, quiet community. Again, theories go both ways. Sadly, Shannon's mother Mary will never get to see the case solved. A black cloud of unfortunate events followed her family, and Mary Gilbert was murdered in her home in Ellenville, New York, by her daughter Sarah Gilbert, who was arrested and charged with her murder. What we can say for sure that no matter what, Shannon Gilbert is a part of the Lisk story. We can only hope that one day we can see justice served for all these women whose lives were taken so viciously. Okay, Lakers, it's time to dock. But join me next week on another eerie adventure on a murderous lake. Until then, stay safe and be kind to one another.